There have been many attempts over several decades to encourage countries who have experienced conflict, both violent and political, towards democracy. From the peaceful and largely successful Rose Revolution in Georgia, and ill-fated attempts at nation buildings and election in Afghanistan, to supporting Arab Spring countries. Hello and welcome to the Taglines podcast. I'm Matilda Martin, and in this edition of the podcast, we look to unpack what democratization means, is there such a thing as too much democracy, and hopefully be able to bring the process of democratization to life through our guests. Joining us today is James Cunliffe, an international security sector reform expert from Britain, with 25 years of experience working in conflict zones. He has three years in the in Department for Peacekeeping at the UNHQ in New York, following two long tours in Afghanistan and in the Democratic Republic of Congo. He also has extensive experience working on democratization in the Middle East. Welcome, James. Thank you. Thank you. We are also joined by Alexei Alekshvili, a former Georgian politician who served as Minister for Finance through a period of rapid reform in the 2000s, and he was the chairman of the UN Commission for Sustainable Development. He's now the chairman of the Policy and Management Consulting Group and uses his experience and expertise to advise countries in Eastern Europe, the Caucasus, North Africa and the Middle East on government modernization. Welcome, Alexei. Thank you, Matilda. Thank you for having me. So I think we'll dive right in. First question I'd like to ask you both. Is democracy really the same as having an election? Alexei, what would you say? Uh, actually, I think the, the election uh, definitely is one of the most important parts of uh, democracy and what we have witnessed in, uh, in our part of the world, like former Soviet Union countries and uh, especially countries with uh, less democratic institutions. Because uh, what we have seen so far is that some countries, for example, Baltics, they have uh, somehow managed to do this much easier. Like, you know, they have focused on the institutional development, while other countries with some difficulties, Eastern European countries like Ukraine, Moldova, Georgia, some Central Asian countries still struggling in uh, democracy. Even when they do these elections, and in many cases, uh, what we have seen, for example, in countries like Kyrgyzstan, we see that they are more democratic than other countries, but the nature of democracy is more a, a tribal approach of tribal distribution of uh, power rather than just election and then institutional development of this, uh, this uh, country. And uh, therefore, I think that there are actually two main, um, uh, maybe, maybe more, but two main pillars in this case. One is election and the proper distribution of power, and then there is another institutional development. When we are talking about that, how institutions are strong enough to deal with this power distribution on the other hand. So this is my opinion. That's really interesting. So with those two building blocks, uh, one of them being elections and the other one on the institutional development. You know, can we look at sort of social, political, economic and cultural uh, as different aspects of that? So, James, in your view, which of these enable or inhibit the emergence of democratic governance? Yes, yes, thanks. I mean, clearly, as Alexei says, the, the political 
environment is 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 critical and central and uh, without it it's impossible to sort of move it forward but uh, i also i also would would add a couple of things i mean uh, in order to create sort of confidence for economic development and a kind of civil society that's confident to express themselves uh, there needs to be a really key focus on the rule, rule of law and when I say rule of law, uh, you know, that's everything about owning land, owning, having title deeds, having confidence in, the, in your own capital that's being invested. So it's farms, businesses, properties, not being shaken down at checkpoints and so on. This kind of d generates confidence. And if there isn't a rule of law, then it is incredibly difficult to, for, for democracy to sort of take, take root on the political level because people don't, just don't believe the politicians, because the security, it's often the security institutions are not reliable uh, and effective. So uh, I think that, that would be a kind of an emphasis that you're not surprised I would be focusing on. But, uh, but you know, that would be my, my initial thoughts on, on that. And, and Alexi, in your view, then, taking those things together, the, the rule of law element and, and the institutional development and the elections, how do you see these working together? I think uh, these two elements are crucially important for sure. Like, um, and uh, together with the social economic, uh, so social economic uh, elements as uh, or, or environments that uh, absolutely properly mentioned here, because um, uh, well, what we have seen, like uh, again, like uh, the heritage that we are uh, that we are coming from, uh, especially these post-Soviet countries then uh, what uh, like the, the where the the role of the state role of the the, the 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 political power itself was so so high uh, so uh, so important that uh, usually the the human rights issue was absolutely behind like you know that was not uh, covered at all and uh, from that perspective and uh, this is not an element of uh, only human rights as an individual but you know this is the matter of for the businesses for the the social groups and for all the 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 the, the elements of the society and therefore what we see is that the rule of law is really very important part and the judiciary of course related to that and then elections because then election determines the the power distribution and the rule of law uh, determines the, the solidity of this of this part as well. And without that, uh, that there is that there is no way for democracy and then the social social development itself. Yeah, absolutely. But then coming back to to another point, perhaps, which is that in Western democratic states, these conditions that you're both describing now they took centuries to emerge. And in many cases, part of that emergence came through bloody civil war or, or international war. So in your view, is there any way to accelerate this trajectory? And perhaps are there any additional or other factors that we can draw experience from? James, do you want to go first? Yes. Yes. No, no thank you. Um, no, it's, it's a good question. I think a lot of people can't understand, particularly with this uh, explosion, proliferation of smart telephones and understanding of world events all around the world. People probably can't understand why some of the, if you like, the key tenets 
are not are not accepted around the world. But of course, you know, this is where one really has to understand the sort of the, the local environment and and really try and draw on some of the the the, the, the well versed principles of the freedoms that democracy provides, but without trying to sort of impose some kind of Western template, which quite often often doesn't work. I think, you know, every environment I've worked in, uh, without exception, we are, we, we always encounter segregated, sectarian, elitist, sort of patronage-based um, environments. And um, you, you, one has to kind of work with that. And whilst we obviously much prefer to see some kind of broad agreement consensus uh it is it is always in, incredibly difficult so uh these are sort of one of the one or two of the points that, that i'd make and in in line with that james you know we know where it's failed such as afghanistan um but in your experience is there anywhere that you think it's it's worked well i mean afghanistan uh is is always going to be a difficult subject it's very very uh controversial it's got it got massive media concentration heavy u.s involvement of course in not only the whole engagement initially in 2001-2 but also later when you know the decision was made to leave i mean the the the, the 20 years that that period covered might seem a long time and costly in in many ways but actually in the sort of development of a state from, from previous 20, 30 years of conflict and, and, and foreign interventions, or to think that in 20 years it, the job is done and that any kind of assistance, whether it's political, economic, security, whatever, is, is, is unrealistic. I mean, 20 years is, is, a, is a, a blink. It's, it's one, one and a half generations. It's nothing. Uh, and that's where I think that sort of, you might call it strategic patience or sort of... Um, committed um, engagement, sustained engagement, has to be, uh, has to be a way in which, well, for, for, if you like, international professionals, consultants like ourselves, we've got to try and explain that better for decision makers, politicians and everything, that, uh, that, that patience, that sustained engagement is, is so important. Absolutely. And, and Alexia, I mean, you've been at the heart of this yourself. And what is your personal experience of going through the process of democratization? So I think um, the most important part in this case, and um, considering the considering situation in Georgia, for example, and uh, having this uh, experience, uh, you you mentioned uh, 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 when during the 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 start uh, of this uh, conversation. Uh, Rose Revolution, and then a very interesting point of uh, having Rose Revolution in Georgia was that um, Georgia at that time, coming from uh, again really very uh, uh, environment inherited from Soviet Union, and then also very corrupted in all elements of the, the system itself, that is uh, governance or social economic environment, etc. And then there was a uh, kind of tiny, but you know, very important window of opportunity that had to be uh, utilized by the, the political political groups that time, and that was more or less well used and well managed, uh, so that you know the situation helped us to 
deal with some significant reforms of public administration, uh, fiscal systems, and uh, law enforcement institutions. So that you know that helped to reduce uh, corruption dramatically, as well as to improve institutional capacity and improve uh, at the, at the eventually the democratization as well. Although there are, there were a lot of specific uh, specific uh, problems as well. I mean, especially with judiciary, especially with uh, with the rule of law and human rights. Of course, that was not easy uh, path. And you know, r right now when we see this. This is still progressing. I mean, what we have just, you know, wit uh, witnessed, what we are witnessing right now is like, like you know, there are a lot of challenge challenges in Georgia, especially related to rule of law and uh, judiciary and human rights. But this is the process. I mean, we cannot just, you know, say that, okay, this is all, all something has been done and now this is over. I know this is the, the progressing process and we need to follow this progress as much as possible and follow up as much as possible further. So this is, this is what we have to see. So in, in the process of democratization, you know, you see a distribution of wealth, you talk about fiscal reform, etc. But uh, I would probably argue that we don't see that a lot. You know, in many, many countries on the process of democratization, uh, politics is more of a zero sum game. And, and in, in that game, the winners grab everything and the losers get nothing and, and often they can't accept the loss. In those situations, is there a way out of that? Uh, particularly in many cases, since the winners are likely to control the media, the security forces, the rule of law, all those elements that we've discussed. You know, again, looking at uh, perhaps some countries in the Middle East where we can see this happening. What's your what's your view on that sort of zero sum game? You know, based on my experience, uh, that you know, working for example in the Middle East and Central Asia and these countries. The, the very important element in this process is not just only elaborating new laws or just uh, copying some systems from one place to another because that usually doesn't work. Right? The most important one is that when there is a, um, a um, the need for de-bureaucratization at the same time, since the government or the like uh, the overall system, the role of the government is so high in the economy and social economic life of the country that everything is grabbed by the the elite on one hand, you know, and then the elite determines the whole lifestyle of the country. And in this case, if we reduce the the the, the, the role of the country, role role of the government, and debureaucratize the the system itself, then that that's what exactly works. For example, the case of Georgia was uh, specifically related to that because the idea was not just to reduce, for example, to improve the business enabling environment per se, because business enabling environment is on one hand related to taxes or related to some particular elements, licenses, uh, permits, etc. But on the other side, if we do not reduce the bureaucracy itself, then bureaucracy tries to grab a power again. I mean, inventing some additional tools towards that, right? So, and in this case, bureaucracy is really very well utilized by some autocratic powers or autocratic uh, uh, the, 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 the governments. So, therefore, here is how we can do this, how we can deal with state-owned enterprises, for example, which is the biggest part of the economy. 
because when the L, everything is just you know related accumulated under this particular wing of the economy then of course really very difficult to talk about democracy or distribution of power so that's that's the really very important element to make this reform as complex and as uh, diversified as possible because focusing on rule of law elaborating laws or try to create some like you know the uh, the the uh, proper judiciary uh, that sometimes is not enough we need to just you know, look at the whole landscape on a complex way rather than just you know focus on some particular elements Alex, if i if i could just quickly pick up on 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 your points there which are, which are very very well made I mean, I think the trouble with diversification of sort of power structures uh, is that you quite often end up with some kind of ethno-sectarian carve-up of power, if you like. And that's certainly what we're seeing in, in Iraq, where under the Muhassasa system, there is this sort of distribution of power. The, 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 the president is always Kurdish, the prime minister is always Shia. Uh, the speakers always Sunni. That kind of, that kind of almost um, institutionalized the sectarian divide, and it, you end up with this kind of different kind of patronage-based uh, democracy, where you know you 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 have you have to tie your colours to one one particular mast. It's almost like having three masts um, on a ship, and it's very very difficult to keep a, a common direction because everybody is pulling in different ways. So diversification. It sounds uh, sounds a good idea because you want as many of the, of the civil society and political groups and ethnic groups to be engaged in democratic processes. It's not the the easy kind of simple solution. Uh, and you know, I mean, look, it's the same that's going on in Sudan at the moment, where you've got the the, the institutions. Uh, fighting out, fighting their way, fighting between themselves, in, in particularly in around Khartoum, the existing Sudanese uh, security forces, rapid reaction forces, f fighting and facing off against each other, um, both fighting, you know, both groups fighting for power and and, uh, and political strength, and so, you know, this sort of diversification is is is, is attractive in many respects. Uh, but it is, it is also quite fraught with with difficulties. So, so at what stage then would you both say does does the sort of personal relationship elements the all these things that we've now covered at what stage does that start to undermine democratic governance as a concept, James? I think sometimes sometimes it's um, those personal relationships. Uh, have advantages in long, longevity, if you like, as as the different competing parties understand each other and where each other are coming, and also if they can see and enjoy a period of stability, that can, on the one hand, provide a sense of of optimism. Of course, the the other danger of longevity is that political power groups get more and more entrenched. They have more and more control over state resources. They might have tied up. Uh, some certain elements of the economy, some contracts that they've got, uh, they've got absolutely nailed down, and no one can compete with that, and that can cause its own own difficulties. Um, and and so, if we move forward then um, a little bit to talk about the democracy uh, as a concept, Ex I, I would posit that Afghanistan was was an example, as you said, James, to to get to a Western-style democracy 
quickly. And, and we have other issues in, in the West where Brexit, for example, is an issue of total democracy in many ways. How much democracy is really useful and, and where does it become a potential risk to a state, Alexei? Um, actually, if I may also to continue this, uh, the, the previous question as well, like uh, how, what to done, for example, in Afghanistan. I mean, I, 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 we had several projects there. So, and the really very interesting uh, experience I got uh, from Afghanistan was that um, there were a lot of programs in improving the capacity of public servants. That, that was really very interesting issue. One of them was Ministry of Economy, and um, we, we, we worked there, uh, like, you know, the, to, like uh, providing policy advisory and, you know, providing some uh, kind of advices to improve business enabling environment. So and when we asked, like, you know, how many servants the Ministry of Economy had and what they were doing, and actually they had, I don't know, a huge number, uh, 23,000 something, and they were not doing anything, but, you know, providing some absolutely meaningless licenses and permits for carpets exported somewhere else in the world, and nobody had an idea why they, that w was necessary. So then we said, I mean, why do we need so many employees? Like, you know, let's just, you know, get, get rid of these guys because they are just, you know, they, this is the burden for the budget. This is the burden for the business. This is the burden for everyone. Like, why don't we just, you know, get some, some release of it? And then the answer was, you know, if we get rid of these people, they would join Taliban or they would join someone else. So, and if it is the, the story, then we are not providing efficient uh, international development services at the end, because that is not exactly, the, the, the way uh, the appro uh, approach had to be absolutely different. We're supposed to provide business enabling environment for those people, because these people were absolutely literate. They could just, you know, read, right? And uh, they were uh, some lawyers at least, or economists, etc. They could deal with the businesses themselves. and. Having them in the public service or public uh, public institutions, that was just in you know, a way absolutely opposite. So we uh, had to have them outside of the, the public services and the government and uh, improve the business enabling environment on the other side. So in th that's exactly the same story in many different countries like Iraq or other countries as well. So now issue is what we can do. Uh, the democracy itself does not mean only elections and rule of law, as we as we started uh, the, this discussion. But this is also means that liberal social economic environment as well. So we need to push for liberal social economic environment to create some kind of middle class having the property uh, in their on their hand and then providing um, uh, businesses and supporting these businesses, etc. So this is uh, how I see the, the the solution in this case. It, that, that's interesting. I mean, coming to following on on that point, um, if we look at international development and how how the Western world has been supporting countries, they often provide things like governance, accountability, you know, rule of law, the things we've discussed here. But for example, China is offering and building airports and roads. 
And many of the fastest developing countries in Southeast Asia, for example, such as Malaysia and, and Vietnam, they have had very little Western international development support. Uh, but they are successful business environments, as you mentioned, Alexi. So should we, as development actors, take a leaf out of China's international development approach? Perhaps controversial. James, what do you think? Yeah, well, I think uh, it's, it's, again, it's very easy to see uh, how you know, quick wins for the Chinese to build roads, railways, and so on. Uh, sounds, sounds attractive, but we, we know perfectly well quite often those are there to support their extraction of natural resources or to win you know, early concessions on areas. Uh, and um, that, is, that is fine as far as it goes, uh, but I'm not sure it necessarily benefits uh, the country in, in, in you know, going forward on the long term. But I mean, come, just coming back to your, coming back to your, your earlier point um, about you know, why does the West try to sort of make Afghanistan look like Denmark in five minutes? You know, that kind of common um, media, Western media kind of uh, narrative. Well, actually, I mean, first of all, remember half the population in Afghanistan are, are women, children. They want... They, they want a future. They want to stay in their future too. And I think you know, it's all very well to sort of say, well, it, wouldn't it be great to be, for these, these countries to be still run by a strong man? I think half the population wouldn't agree with you there uh, immediately. And you know, the West's attempt at, you know, at, at supporting a country as it develops post-conflict uh, is, a, is a time-consuming uh, exercise. It needs to have very strong local ownership you know, there's far too much, I would, I would agree, there's been far too much Western kind of applying kind of Western templates, Western models that, that don't work. And I think, I think everybody has recognised that that's got to change. But also, uh, the West has got to try to help more and more sort of develop p the political leadership in a country so that they can actually, uh, actually sort of take responsibility for running countries so often. In Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, Sudan, you know, I can give you many other examples, certainly uh, DRC where I worked. Uh, it's so often the governments are weak, they're fragmented, and to a certain extent affected by foreign interference. And, and so all of this kind of um, um, concoction, this mix of, of weakness, of interference, of, of muddled, muddled thinking everywhere is, is what one's got to try and find a way through and find pathways through. And, uh, and, and, this, is, uh, and this is the challenge. I, th I think the, I mean, the other, quickly, the point that picking up on uh, Alexis about, um, you know, a bloated public sector, which again, you see so often in conflict, um, conflict affected countries, you end up with a very large public sector um, you know, take, you take Iraq, where they, they are oil and gas rich, and the way in which they really manage to keep the country stable is by having a very, very large and over-provided uh, over for public sector. And that's lots of jobs and long pensions for, for all sorts of people who've been involved in government. And, of course, that doesn't diversify the economy, it doesn't create jobs, it causes a frustration amongst the youth, uh, particularly those who haven't got jobs. Uh, and, you know, you know, and once again, you know, it, it's 
not allowing democracy to give freedoms to people to then have an economic uh, future, to invest in the country, to creating jobs and so on. Um, so those, those are a few, a few thoughts. Absolutely. Alexi, do you want to come in on that point? Uh, yeah, actually, uh, this um, China's intervention in the process of uh, infrastructure development of those emerging markets and uh, countries uh, with, uh, with difficulties. So, absolutely agree on that uh, concerns. Uh, that, uh, but at the same time, we need to analyze why that's happening, right? So, the, the, the first is the corruption. Like you know, this is um, this is uh, what is uh, what is the the. the uh, the, the basic uh, basic environment is co corrupted, and that's why this is much easier to deal with that and just to trying to find a way of this. And another one is uh, inefficiency of decision making on the other side, because when the country or government uh, needs to develop something, and then they have some kind of long term like negotiations with. Uh, with the multilaterals or bilateral uh, Western countries, then that's usually somehow, you know, this is uh, sometimes in, inefficient in, the, in, in this regard, like, you know, the, the, this, this process. And the, the last one is a debt management, sovereign debt management, which is also a very important part. And I think that multilateral institutions like IMF and the World Bank has to play the significant role to, to keep this uh, process as transparent as possible and then um, make, make uh, like, you know, the more or less proper rules in this case, because otherwise we, we will just see the same cases in many different countries that we've already seen, like in other, like Sri Lanka or African countries. This is, this is really very important. Can I, can I just add, sorry, one, one other point I want to make about, about China and, uh, and other um, you know, emerging economies that were really trying to uh, get in, uh, involved, I mean, particularly in Africa. Um, one's also got to remember that you know, a lot of their infrastructure work, whilst in the, on the one hand supporting Chinese development, their own uh, internal development, um, but the other uh, downside is that there's quite often massive debt that's, that's left, you know, and there's, there's no debt relief. You know, there's, uh, there's no respect for human rights, for international law, for human security. So and one's got to be very careful about saying, well, actually, you know, China are doing a great job helping with long-term infrastructure projects. Uh, and to an extent, they are. Uh, but don't think that it's not, hasn't got a, got a downside or a whole host of intended, unintended uh, consequences. I think that that's a really useful point uh, and probably want to import. We can say that that balance, we're coming back to balance, right? There is a balance between having elections, rule of law, institutional development. There's a balance between too much democracy and too little democracy. There's a balance between the Western sort of st structured governance, accountability and the infrastructure investment. And that balance seems to be the key takeaway really from our conversation today. And how to find that balance is something that, that we are continuously struggling with. And I'm not sure that we've found the answer today but I do think that we've come a bit further in debating it. So as we come to a close today, I'd like to ask you both a question that I like to ask all of our guests. And that is, if you had unlimited, unlimited money and unlimited time, and you could do one thing to improve democratization, what would it be, Alexi? If I had uh, like a uh, 
the, uh, the, the, the tools to improve the democracy, what I would do. This, this, that's the, okay. So I would, I would say that uh, I think that the, the idea of keeping the balance is really very important element. This, this is definitely a very interesting approach, and I think this is absolutely true. Uh, from my point of view, what I would add in this case is, uh, is a fiscal decentralization and decentralization of the central and territorial governments, because that's also really very important element. So somehow those, uh, what is uh, missing in many cases, we are trying to improve the, the capacity or improve the overall environment on the central level of the government, while there are uh, really very important elements to decentralize the whole country on uh, in terms of the power. And in this case, that would be definitely a very important element because that should be based on a constitutional and uh, overall consensus level as well of the, of, the, of the country. And what we have seen is that in those countries where this decentralization uh, um, is uh, on place, then that uh, democratization is also on a, on a higher level. That's a very interesting point. And, and James, what would you do if you had unlimited money? Yeah, no, I think Alexi makes, uh, makes very, very good points, particularly about sort of sub-national governance, uh, delegating authority down to governorates. Uh, it does seem more and more, in my, in my sense, that we, uh, we focus our assistance far too much on the capital, on, 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 on central government, and not enough on trying to find ways I mean, actually, if you look at the Iraq, Iraq model, whilst it's still very uh, a very complicated relationship, the Kurdish region of Iraq is is doing pretty well. I mean, it's it's there are all sorts of political difficulties, uh, and they are they're not in a good place necessarily in Baghdad, but it is a a, a model that is worth uh, developing. I think my, my main answer to your question is. It, is, it goes back to uh, economic development. I mean, I, I was involved in the troubles in Northern Ireland. I know this is in a kind of developed Western world, but the truth of Northern Ireland peace was all about economic opportunity, partly for the uh, for the you know the the, the Catholic minority, uh, and, and but also for everybody who could see the their the standard of living improvement, opportunity for jobs housing and education improving, all of this made such an important factor on, uh, on individuals' lives that actually when the political processes started, people would think, well, actually, do you know what? This is what we, this is what we want. Um, so, you know, I think, I think uh, economic development and subnational governments are key. I mean, I think, you know, one last example. I mean, uh, I do recall very much getting involved in the Mali crisis you know, 10 years ago, and and the international community piled in to Bamako. They wanted to create democracy there. There was lots of talk of elections, and the, the priority almost was on sort of creating democracy, when actually out in the, uh, in the major part of their country, in the Sahel, there was absolutely, there was no law and order. There was, it was terrible insecurity for, for people, uh, and that really was just a sort of like a sort of second order issue, whereas actually, if somehow the uh, the government of Mali was were assisted by the international community, and obviously the UN peacekeeping force, there were French forces 
to really find all the effort to stabilize the regions, then once people can see that as being the norm, then the, set, the later stage would be then to really try and work hard on the central democratic institutions and so on. So I think quite often they got it kind of the wrong way around, all about building central government but forgetting that the rest of the country. Thank you both for your answers. I think that really summarises the some of the challenges, but also some of the key approaches that we should be taking to, towards achieving positive and stable democratisation. We really hope that you'll continue enjoying the debate by subscribing to Taglines on your favourite podcast platform or visit the Taglines hub at tagindev.com. There you can comment, share and take the conversation forward with us. Thank you for joining us.